we have the opportunity to begin a study on the life of the Apostle Paul, and I've been thinking about uh, it from the book of Acts, that is. I've been thinking about it for quite some time, and John was kind enough to take a break from his study and uh, give me an opportunity. Thank you for being here, and indeed pray that God would bless this study, that we would better understand uh, what the book of Acts is about, particularly lessons uh, from the life of Paul. And today is just going to be introduction, hopefully with some good applications at the end. But um, let's consider some introductory topics. We will hit several scriptures, but it's not an exposition today, more of a general introduction. So we have, as John has taught us uh, in several cases, um, the Gospel of Luke and Acts, which are two books by the same author, and we believe that author was Luke, based on the internal hints, and even from the second century, uh, it's been tradition that Luke is the author uh, for various reasons. You can study that out. There's hundreds of pages of uh, introductory words uh, by the commentators and other good books, and if you need any suggestions, uh, let us know. But we do believe that Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, as well as Acts, And just as we think about Luke's introduction, let's turn over to Luke 1 and just read verses 1 through 4. And many have suggested that these words are an introduction for even both books, but you'll see links as we read Luke 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught, or Catechize the things you have been taught, uh, question and answer format, possibly. And he goes into uh, the birth of John the Baptist, uh, and then the birth of Jesus, and so forth, all the way to the end. And turn over to the end of Luke, Luke 24. Luke 24, we'll pick it up uh, at verse 46. After the road to Emmaus, Jesus is speaking Uh, to the disciples and, and the apostles, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. So something of uh, the Great Commission and 
Jesus' departure and the reminder of this promise of the Holy Spirit, then turn over to Acts 1. Thinking of Luke 1, Acts 1. Acts 1 will read 1 through 9. The first account I composed, which was what? Luke. We just read Luke 1, and he's referring to it here. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, to these also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. So you see the link between Luke 1, uh, Luke 24, and then Acts 1, which is wonderful that we can get the context of our New Testament. And and frankly, uh, I wish that we had Matthew, Mark, John, Luke, and Acts so that we'd really see this connection between these two books. And again, we believe that Luke was the author not based on explicit data, but on these internal hints and even the tradition. Those that received it, um, you know, he, he dedicates it to this Theophilus, but he doesn't say, I, Luke, do this. But apparently they knew who it was and passed that on through the, through the years. Just a few uh, scripture um, references to Luke. Turn over to Philemon. Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, Philemon, one chapter, and picking it up um, at verse 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. So Luke was a fellow worker of the Apostle Paul, along with these other People. Then turn over to Colossians, or I'll say back to Colossians, back to Colossians chapter 4, Colossians 4 at the end, verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. Luke, the beloved physician, we believe it's the same Luke, a physician and there's other 
data in his Gospels. You can look up how that might relate to him being a physician. Maybe he helped Paul. We really don't know, but you can think about it. And then 2 Timothy 4, just over a couple pages. 2 Timothy 4, picking it up at, uh, let's see, verse 9. 2 Timothy 4, verse 9, make every effort to come to me, and he's writing from and during his Roman imprisonment. For Demas, we've heard about Demas in the other passages, but here, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Only Luke is with me. Uh, At this point uh, in the Roman imprisonment, Luke is there uh, ministering, helping uh, him at that point. And of course, the end of Acts is in Rome. Um, Also, There are several we passages in the book of Acts. I think we've mentioned those before. Turn over to Acts 16, verse 10. Acts 16, verse 10, the Macedonian vision. Uh, Verse 10 says, When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. Again, we don't have descriptions, but based on what we've said, we believe this is Luke and others. We... We sought, and over to 20, uh, verse 5, Acts 20, verse 5, but these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. We sailed from Philippi. And that goes, uh, the story continues all the way through 21 and verse 18 where we read, and the following day Paul went in with us to James And then over to 27, 27, verse 1, when it was decided that we would sail for Italy. And that goes all the way through 28, 16, when we entered Rome. So it's interesting that uh, we have these hints and details about Luke with the Apostle Paul. And it would make sense writing all of, uh, most of Acts is really about the life of Paul and Luke being this researcher as he wrote the Gospel of Luke, then he writes this book of Acts. So again, these are some hints and internal information about the author of Acts, Luke. And now just hitting a few themes, uh, thinking about Luke and Acts. Luke's Gospel is about the coming of Christ And Acts is about the coming of the Spirit. Or, Luke's Gospel is about the life of Christ, and Acts is about the life of the Church of Christ. So he's looking at the beginning of of Christ's ministry, and then the beginning of the Church's ministry by the Spirit. And remember that the book of Acts is a fulfillment of Christ's promise in the Gospel, When we read uh, John's words, I baptize you with water, but one who is coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to untie his sandals, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And even as we read earlier, 
uh, we read the promise of the Father in Acts 1 that he would send the Spirit. Frankly, we could, uh, and I think I've penciled it in or put it by pen in my Bible, the Acts of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, uh, Luke emphasizes the Holy Spirit, uh, mentioning him 17 times more than the other gospel writers. But can you imagine how many times the Holy Spirit is mentioned in Acts? 57 times, more than any other book, of course, by size at least, but 57 times the book of Acts mentions the Holy Spirit. And we know from John 14 and forward that Jesus said, I will send you the Comforter and he will testify of me. Jesus is mentioned 70 times. So it's interesting, we see the Spirit uh, reference, and yet the Spirit points to Christ. But surely we get a good dose of pneumatology, the study of the person of the Holy Spirit uh, throughout the book of Acts. Again, 57 references to the Spirit of God in the book of Acts. So we can't dismiss the emphasis of Luke, uh, not only on Jesus, but the Holy Spirit who points to Jesus and would guide the disciples into all truth. What what are some other themes in the book of Acts? Not only the coming of the Spirit, but also ecclesiology, the establishment and the building of the church of Jesus Christ. We're here today partly as a continuance of the book of Acts. The Spirit continued to establish local churches throughout the millennia, and here we are today. Praise God for the Spirit's work in regenerating sinners and adding them and establishing local churches. Jesus said, I will build my church against against which the gates of hell will not prevail. And what is the church made up of radically? Jews and Gentiles. A powerful theme in the book of Acts is this breaking down the wall that for so long there was a theocracy and God's people were Israel and the church comes along and and Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus are united in one. One of the greatest themes in the book of Acts is that, and we see Paul, yes, going to the synagogues and starting there in Jerusalem, but continuing on to Rome and preaching and being the preacher to the Gentiles. And then the church was made up of Jews and Gentiles, profoundly by the power of the Spirit, by the power of Christ. It was radical. And that's why there were so many problems where the Jews and even the believing Jews couldn't quite get their heads around it. And even Peter and even Barnabas got tripped up on how to treat these Gentile believers. So as we go through the study, keep that in mind, this transitional phase, if you will, to the church. It's, it's wonderful and profound and was very difficult for the Jewish believers in Jesus. But this was no new plan for the nations. God had promised to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Or your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. We see that fulfillment beginning in the book of Acts. The promise to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, fulfilled by the power of Christ, by the power of the Spirit, 
the multitude of the nations, even at Pentecost, we see all these people from all these nations being filled with the Spirit and speaking in languages they didn't know because the nations are being brought in. It was a profound time in God's history. Or even as we read in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth, even to Stillicum, Washington. The apostolic message has reached the American shores for a few hundred years and here we are today. The message kept coming and we, by God's grace, want to see that continue. And how does that continue? Through a variety of ways, but primarily through preaching. The book of Acts is the history of the preaching of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. I was excited to find out again, Jesus is mentioned 70 times in the book of Acts, and 15 or so as Christ. But the preaching of and about Jesus is central to the establishment of his church and missions. And in that message, what did they preach about the kingdom of God? They preached, repent of your sins, believe in Jesus, you will be saved, and then when you're saved, you are to be baptized as a disciple of Jesus. So thus, then we move to missions. Acts is a history of missions. It's the first church history, and Luke is the author, and it's profitable for teaching the spread of the gospel of Christ. And again, it's continued until now. And uh, we look at missions historically and we find many instructive principles and lessons about missions from the book of Acts based on Christ's commission to go, to go in the power of the Spirit. We also see not only the establishment of the church, of preaching, of missions, but we also see a history of persecution from the very beginning. From Acts 4, they laid hands on them, Peter and the apostles, and 14 times in Acts, prisons are mentioned. The establishment of the church was the establishment of the persecution of the church, which has continued until today. And we're thankful that we're not being sent to prison, but many of our brothers and sisters are and have been, and we ought to pray. So we see that in the book of Acts as well. Not an encouraging note, but a sobering note. Matthew Henry said, The history of Acts is filled with the sermons of the apostles, but also the sufferings of the apostles. And it's nothing different than from what we see today globally. Well, we've looked at all of these points, some themes. Well, what about the theology? And we could say many points. Uh, you could have sermons on the theology of the book of Acts, but just one point that I wanted to to remind us of, that true conversions are a result of God's sovereign grace. True conversions, and we could even say true churches, are a work of God's sovereign grace. Listen to Acts 2.39. As many as the Lord our God will call to himself. They could preach with confidence and boldness knowing that it wasn't based on their uh, ability, the preachers, 
or the evangelist or even the people telling their friends who Jesus was, it was based on as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And often that verse can be left out when when other parts of that verse are quoted, but it, it is a qualifier and a great instruction that salvation is of from God's sovereign grace. Second example is in Acts 13, Acts 13, verse 48. After they were preaching, we read those words, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. We see God's sovereignty. Uh, I read years ago, J.I. Packer, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. They're not at odds. Of course, even in Acts, we see this truth. We preach or evangelize, and we trust God's sovereignty to do his work. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Thirdly, Lydia. Lydia. It says, the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Salvation from beginning to end is God's work in drawing sinners and giving them the grace to believe, to repent, and causing them to be saved. True conversions are a work of God's sovereign grace. We have to remember that today as we evangelize, as we point people to Christ, as we preach. Of course, it's dependent on God's working in their hearts. It's encouraging that his work will be completed and we can leave the results in his hands. Our role is to responsibly explain, teach, proclaim, and preach the gospel, but the results are in God's hands. That's encouraging, and we see it in the book of Acts. And then what about the the, the dates of Paul's life? Uh, it's a bit uh, complicated, but generally uh, it's believed that Paul was converted, which we read about in chapter 9, in 33 A.D. And again, there's there's some different numbers in there around or about 33 A.D. And then the book proceeds for many years coming to Acts 28, which is into the 60s. So from Acts um, 9 through the end of the book, there are all these years between into the maybe 30 years through those chapters. And Paul most likely died... Um, around 63 to 64, maybe later, and, and many believe that Acts was written before 65 A.D., um, and there's a lot of different views on this that you can study out, but I think it's good just to have the general idea. Uh, Paul's converted around 33 A.D., dies in the 60s, and the book was written shortly after that. Again, you can go really far with this and read uh, hundreds of pages of uh, disputes and so forth. Uh, I would definitely believe it was completed before 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem, um, and you can chew on that. Hermeneutics. A hermeneutical reminder, how do we interpret the book of Acts? Well, we ha- have to remember, like much of the Old Testament we've studied, that Acts is descriptive, not as prescriptive. Generally speaking, it's it's history, so it's describing what happened. It's not like an epistle where we have these commands. There are things in it like that, but Acts is descriptive. If you take the book of Acts and turn it into every verse is prescriptive, you're going to run into some real challenges. 
And so that's a good reminder when we study the history of the Bible. It's primarily descriptive, not that we can't prescribe from it, but it's it's a good hermeneutical reminder. And if you want to read, we, we read years ago in the men's meeting, Knowing Scripture by R.C. Sproul, a small book, excellent on the topic of hermeneutics. And you can read more about that idea, descriptive versus prescriptive there. Finally, as a general point of introduction, I want to encourage you and myself. Uh, Rita and I started reading Acts. We haven't got very far, but we want to continue to read it. Read the book of Acts as we go through this study. It's good to read the first chapters even before you get to Paul, so you get Luke's flow. Read it. Meditate upon it. Study it. Maybe pick up a commentary. Read along. And as Tom's been exhorting us, study the word for yourself. Don't only just read it. McShane's calendar checkbox. No, study the word. And that's the privilege of teaching or preaching. We get the chance to really get into it a bit deeper. All of us should be doing that to some degree. So study, meditate, pray over what you're studying in the book of Acts. And um, talk about it. You know, Ask questions. Ask the elders. Ask me if you have a question. What does this mean? Uh, we'll wrestle through it. We may not have the answer, but we can propose some suggestions or wrestle through it together. So let's think of this study, really as all the studies, to be Bereans, studying, searching, meditating, and may the life of Paul from the book of Acts prompt us to do that afresh. Well, then a couple other points as we think about Paul, or beginning as Saul. Um, Paul of Tarsus. Paul of Tarsus. Now, I'm indebted to John because he continues to bring this great history, the background of the Gospels, and maybe you remember. I didn't remember much of anything about Tarsus. So Paul says in Acts 21:39, I am a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city. Is Tarsus significant to you outside of this verse? Uh, no. <laughs> We know nothing about Tarsus, so I thought it might be helpful if we just review. There's some fascinating things about Tarsus in Cilicia. And I learned a lot, and I hope you'll appreciate this. Tarsus was the capital of the ancient province of Cilicia. It was, and there still is, a, a town there located in the eastern Mediterranean. If you maybe look at your, if your Bible maps have... Uh, Turkey, maybe my last missionary journeys of Paul, you might have something like it you can open up. Sorry, I'm not good with the PowerPoints as John has, but hopefully you have maps in the back of your Bible and you can look and you can see uh, Israel and then going north, you hit Antioch and just to the left, if you will, or to the west, you'll find the town of Tarsus. Tarsus. It was the capital of this province of Cilicia. That's spelled in a couple different ways. Um, But it's a town which is in modern-day Turkey. And it's about 12 miles from the sea, from the Mediterranean Sea. And actually, at the time that Paul was there, it was a port city because this river called the Sindus River, modern-day it's named Burdan, the Sindus River went from the sea right to the city of Tarsus. Now, over the millennia, that sea, that river uh, was turned to a marsh, 
and for a long time there was no river going to the sea, but then they, they dug it out as they, you know, they have to dredge it somehow. I don't know how you do that in ancient times, but they, they or maybe more modern, they dredged it and they dammed it up and, and now uh, there's a dam on that river to the sea. So there, it's no longer a port city and hasn't been for a long time. But it was a massive port city. And the, the current port city, uh, if you're in logistics and you ship cargo around the world, you've heard of Mersin. Mersin is a massive port in Turkey. Uh, it's not the largest, but it's one of the largest. And it's just uh, 16 miles from the, the town, the classical town of Tarsus. In Paul's time, it's suspected that a half a million people lived in Tarsus. It was a massive city. And it was also a city that was heavily influenced by the Greeks. The Greek language was spoke in Tarsus at the time of Paul. But the city was also uh, Roman, so Paul not only spoke uh, Greek, but probably Latin. And as a Jew, he spoke Hebrew and Aramaic. Paul grew up and was educated greatly and listened to more about the city of Tarsus where he was from, his parents, and thinking about you know, maybe where you're from, think about where Paul was from, Tarsus. Tarsus was also an important stop for traders being a port and the focal point of many civilizations. It was an ancient city. Even Alexander the Great went through there with his army in the 300s. Um, he even died after bathing in the Sindus River. I don't know the whole story. 40 B.C., it's where Mark Antony met Cleopatra. There was a lot of famous history going back even thousands of years before this. The colleges, if you will, or the schools of Tarsus rivaled those of Athens and Alexandria. I, I didn't know this. Uh, actually, the library in Tarsus hold, oh, held over 200,000 documents. That's more than we're at Alexandria. Sorry, sweetie. <laughs> so they say, exactly. The evidence is a bit wanting, I know, but this is what the historians tell us. Uh, 200,000 documents? That was a massive library, and it included a huge collection of scientific works as well. Tarsus was a civil and religious metropolis, a grand city with palaces, marketplaces, roads, bridges, baths, fountains, waterworks, a gymnasium on the banks of the Sindus, and even a stadium. It was a massive and happening city, if you will. But guess what? Tarsus was also known for its tent-making. In the ancient world, it was a center of tent-making. It was a staple manufacturer of the city, uh, as because weaving was, and they weaved ropes into tent covers and garments of hair, which was supplied by the boundless flocks of goats. Now, Jewish boys, I, I, I've read, had to have a backup profession. They, they didn't only have their main profession, but they had a backup in case the other one didn't work out. Maybe some of you have that. You might want to fall back and be a construction or plumber or whatever it is, a cook. Well, maybe, and again, we can't say this for sure, but maybe tent making was his backup uh, job uh, that the Jewish boys had to have a backup 
role. Tarsus also exported cereals, beans, grain, fish, olives, wine, again, tents, especially large tents for the Roman army. And this rough cloth was known as, guess what? Cilicium. Remember that Tarsus was the capital of Cilicia? Well, the actual cloth is called Cilicium, made from this goat's hair, and, and, the, and the, the goats apparently were black, so it was this black, uh, 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 they would weave this black cloth unless they bleached it somehow or changed the color, dyed it or whatever. Those goats had long hair and they were bred so that they could, they could cut off their hair and, and make these ropes and tents and so forth. Other cities had it, but Cilicia was particularly known for it. So how ironic that we'll read about Paul who uh, was a tent maker by trade. Interesting to consider. And again, Cilicium, uh, this goat's covering, is from Cilicia, Tarsus being the capital. And remember uh, the two people that, that Paul met who, who actually also were tent makers? Remember who they were? Priscilla and Aquila. Now they were uh, from Pontus, so other cities did the same thing. So we can't prove this, but it's it's very interesting to think about. Uh, but this city where he grew up, and and at least through his teen years, most likely was advanced, was cosmopolitan. And when you think about Paul preaching and his intellect and his mind, I think it's not a jump to realize that he was not from Podunkville. He was educated and grew up in this multilingual, multicultural city uh, that surely God used in his ministry. Well, and even later, by the way, when Paul was became a Christian and started preaching Christ and was threatened and rescued, remember the people that let him down, he, he escaped, he was sent away to Tarsus. So maybe he had friends there. Uh, we don't know, but he, he was sent away to Tarsus. And then later, on the second missionary journey uh, with Silas, he travels through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So uh, we'll, we'll get to that later. But eventually there were churches established, and Paul himself went back to his hometown and strengthened the churches or church in Tarsus. What a great story. And again, think about your own story. We're not, most of us aren't from uh, Lakewood or Tacoma. So where we're from affects our future, sometimes in greater ways or less. But surely being from Tarsus uh, affected Paul's life and ministry. Well, next it says Paul uh, was from uh, also an educated in Jerusalem, Acts 22. I am a Jew, which we read in Acts 21, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers. So Paul at Tarsus, now Paul of Jerusalem. We know more about Jerusalem, I think, as we've read through the Gospels, less about Tarsus. But there were devout Jews living in Tarsus, and uh, his parents wanted him, apparently, to get the highest education that a Jewish boy could get. So they send him to Jerusalem, or maybe they moved to Jerusalem, and then he was was put into the school or the under the tutelage of this Gamaliel. Now, uh, Stalker believes that that uh, 
Paul moved there or got started training around the age of 13. That would have been common. So maybe he lived in Tarsus. We don't know. It says, was brought up in this city. What does that mean exactly? We're not sure. But uh, I was delighted to, to be reminded that in Acts 23, it says Paul's sister was also in Jerusalem. So did his parents move there? Did he go and stay with his sister? Because remember, his nephew rescued him. He heard the plot. So you know, we have no other information, but at least Paul's sister, I didn't even remember that Paul's sister was mentioned in the New Testament, but it's one reference in Acts 23, 16, Paul's sister. So maybe some of the family, all the family moved to Jerusalem. We don't know. But he was brought up in the city educated by Gamaliel. Gamaliel was the leader of the Pharisees. He's first mentioned in Acts 5, a member of the council or Sanhedrin, uh, maybe the, the leader. It seems he had great influence. It says that he was a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, and he was giving orders regarding Peter and the apostles. Interestingly, he argued to let them go. When just, you know, a chapter or so later, Paul is imprisoning Christians. So, you can chew on that. Why was his, the teacher who educated Paul, you know, somewhat arguing or saying, you know, these guys are just another element. Uh, just, just, you know, let them go. They were beaten and they let them go. And then Paul is imprisoning Christians just in the next chapter. Interesting to chew on that. But Gamaliel was actually labeled by his contemporaries. His, his nickname, if you will, was the beauty of the law. He, he was so exalted as a Pharisee, as a leader in the Sanhedrin, he was the very beauty of the law. Imagine if that was your description. Of course, um, the Pharisees were experts in the Talmud, the traditions, and the scriptures, although not really experts in the scriptures because they missed the truth in many ways. But remember, Paul's growing up uh, being educated under this man, this expert, where they had to study really hard the Talmud, the Father's writings, the scriptures. They had to memorize and speak and be catechized. And he was getting a thorough, uh, we'll say, biblical in quotes, education. So he was from Tarsus. He was educated in Jerusalem. This would become the Apostle Paul. That great education in the scriptures. Again, problems there. But remember, where did he go when he first went to cities to, to preach and to reason? To the synagogues. And Paul references, I believe, is it in Acts or all of his epistles? Maybe just Acts. Um, 200 plus Old Testament quotes and references. How did he learn that? Well, by being a Jewish boy, by being under the tutelage of Gamaliel, he was an expert in the Old Testament. And then becoming a Christian, he really became an expert, if you will. And all of that was combined to make him the man he was. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, strict and rigid I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, he said. Remember, Jesus said of the Pharisees generally, they were 
actors or hypocrites. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. He gave his sternest rebukes to the Pharisees, to people like Saul of Tarsus and Gamaliel. They invalidated the word of God by your traditions, Jesus said, which you have handed down, and you do many such things as that. They were in a horrid situation. They were so close and yet so far. Yet, God would rescue this man, Saul of Tarsus, and Saul of Jerusalem, Saul, the chief Pharisee of Pharisees, to become maybe the greatest preacher who ever lived, the, the, the preeminent apostle, the writer of so much of our New Testament. William Ramsay, the, one of the experts on the, on the life of Paul, said, the apostle of the Gentiles must be a Jew, a Tarsian citizen, and at the same time a Roman. These things will come up later as he evangelizes uh, these cities. Remember, he was bilingual, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, and probably Latin, and bicultural, moving with ease between Jewish culture and Gentile culture. Schnabel, really enjoying that commentary, uh, made that good point. Can you see how God prepared this boy to a man to become the Apostle Paul. In many ways, an unlikely convert, you could learn, God may use our past in ways we never imagined. When his parents were raising him in Tarsus, they had no comprehension that he would become the Apostle to the Gentiles. No way, no how. Most unlikely thing to happen was Saul of Tarsus to become a Christian let alone a Christian, but the greatest Christian, possibly, if you will. Think about Isaiah 46. Maybe just turn over quickly. Isaiah 46, a great chapter we've went to for many reasons, at many times, a passage that comforts our hearts. Isaiah 46, picking it up at verse 9. And ten, 9 and 10, remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. And here's an example of the, how that is the truth. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So was Paul just randomly born in Tarsus? No. God put him there. Did Paul randomly get moved to Jerusalem and put under the tutelage of Gamaliel? No. God planned it with his good pleasure from before time exactly what he wanted to happen, exactly how he would use this man to accomplish great things for the glory of Christ. Just this morning, I'm, I'm read, I read Proverbs and I encourage you to do the same Uh, Proverbs 20, verse 24. Going the wrong direction. Proverbs 20, verse 24. I read one verse a day usually, and this was the one. Man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How then can man understand his way? There's a lot of applications to that truth, but one is Saul of Tarsus. God ordained the steps of Saul to become Paul the great preacher. 
Now, as we wrap up, and I think we said this about uh, Elijah and Elisha, but ultimately, it's not about Paul. We're not here to become Paulicians. We're not here to become in the, in the camp of Paul, per se. We're called to follow Christ, to know Jesus. As we've been reminded so much in the book of Hebrews, the Bible fundamentally is about Jesus Christ. And we cannot allow the, the great people and the great truths of the Bible to eclipse. That's what happened to the Pharisees. They took other things and they missed the Messiah completely. Acts is ultimately pointing to the glory of Christ, the glory of Christ in building his church. And Paul would tell us, it's, it's not about me. First uh, Corinthians 1 they had a problem in, Cor- in Corinth. Each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? And what's the answer? No. Paul wasn't crucified for us. Paul didn't suffer for us. Paul was not resurrected for us. We were not baptized. I baptize you into the name of Paul. On the one hand, that wouldn't sound so bad. I'm of Paul. I, I believe like Paul did. And there's a lot of so-called theologians debate. Are you in the school of Peter? Are you in the school of Paul? There's a big dispute about Acts. No, it's about Christ. And Paul is insistent that it cannot be about himself. And he said, to live is Christ. And it's the same for us. Our lives and our doctrines must revolve around Jesus Christ. And again, Tom has been so faithful to remind us in every sphere, we're not the Lord and other people are not the Lord's. It's not about having heroes of preachers or commentators or even the apostles. I mean, the Roman Catholic Church, the Coptic Church, the Orthodox Church, they worship the apostles and the saints. And we love Paul and he's a hero in so many ways, but he is not the hero. And we have to emphatically remind ourselves, lest we drift away, or even, uh, we, we may not like to say, I'm a Calvinist. I'm not following a Calvin. I want to be a follower of Christ. And it, it, it's so basic, and yet we can slip away. And so, yes, we're studying the life of Paul from the book of Acts, which is a good study, but in the back of our minds, it's really the life of a man saved by Jesus Christ and then serving Christ until he died. And so that must be in our mind. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So Paul was not self-sufficient. He was utterly dependent on the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. And we must think the same. Well, just a few quick applications. And if you have questions, write them down or come see me. Uh, but just, I thought, we got to have some applications here. Uh, and hopefully this wasn't a dry introduction to the life of Paul. But consider this. The work of the gospel is a team event, to use modern phrases. The work of the gospel is a team event. You read the book of Acts, it's not just about Paul, Peter, John. There's all these people that are listed. 
From the very beginning of Acts, the men and the women, the saints were together and the church was made up of a lot of people. The work of the gospel is a team event. I use that because it's the modern parlance, right? We went to a concert a few weeks ago and the, and the guy came out and he just played his guitar. Then he said, I want to bring out the violinist. I want to bring out the drummer. I'm going to bring out the bass player. I want to bring out another guitarist. And what I observed through that was, wow, a group of people sound a lot better than a soloist. And it reminded me of the church, of, of even now the book of Acts, that the work of the gospel was a team event. We're a family of God. Yes, one may be teaching or preaching, but it's all of us together. And Acts shows that over and over, men and women inflamed by the Holy Spirit, empowered by God to do the work of the ministry together as one body. And Acts reveals that. So we can't worship Paul. Of course, he's not Jesus, but it's not a one-man show. It's brothers and sisters in the work together. The establishment of the local church is a work of the triune God. Did you catch that in Acts 1? It was the Father sending the Spirit. It was Christ sending the Spirit. The work in Acts is the work of the triune God. It's a Trinitarian establishment of the church. Let us be sure that our gospel message aligns with the book of Acts. Acts may not be primarily prescriptive, but when we hear them preaching the gospel we better be preaching the same gospel. And the elements that are in their message ought to be in ours today. That's why we mention, repent of your sins, believe in Jesus Christ who is Lord of all, He's ascended and resurrected, He is the only hope of salvation, and you will be saved. Let our message reflect that. It's nothing else. Let us not neglect the biblical view of the local church. It's been said here before, the church is God's game plan. There's no other institution that he set up. Let us align our Christian life and our view of the local church. Let us not neglect the biblical practice of missions. Missions can be seem so far away, so distant, so like, I can't do that. I'm just going to work tomorrow. That's why we... Pray for and, and support the Panjwanis. You can pray. You can learn. And maybe one or some of us can go. Maybe we could plan a church. And I, I'm rebuked. I think our view of missions is small. We may not have a lot of money, but we can pray. And we do pray at, at prayer meeting and privately. Let's have a biblical view of missions. Jesus said, go. And it's the mission for the church Yes, individually we, we do things on our own, but as a church, let's have a biblical view of missions as well as preaching. Preaching has fallen on hard times. Entertainment, uh, acting, dramas. The, the local church and the biblical church, based on just the history in Acts, did a lot of teaching and preaching. God could have used other methods, but he chose to use the foolishness of preaching and teaching, which is what Jesus did as well. Let's make sure we hold on to the biblical norm. What's normative in the church, in missions, in the gospel, preaching and teaching? And just a final reminder, let us remember to interpret the book of Acts as descriptive, not prescriptive. Again, 
that's within quotes. You will find some prescriptive lessons, I trust, but it's history. It's telling us what happened uh, with the apostles, with the local churches, and so forth. Do you have any comments or questions as we wrap up? Quiz? It's time for a pop quiz. Okay, well, please pray that this study will be profitable. We'll come next week. I wanted to get to it today, the the martyrdom of Stephen when Paul stood by and held their cloaks and then the persecution beginning at Jerusalem. And then, um, I'm not sure if we'll come to his conversion, but what a glorious study. And then moving through these chapters in the book of Acts, the life of Paul by the grace of God for the glory of Christ. Yes. Again, this you know, we would say at least Greek, probably Latin, Hebrew, Aramaic, and maybe more. You know, John. Yes. Yeah, maybe there was some language of um, dialects, and even that the t- Tarsus. You know, what were they speaking at that point? And because it was so cosmopolitan, he may have picked up. You know, obviously. The point is, the man had great intellect and and education. And when you grow up in a place like that, if you grow up in L.A., you may know some Spanish, you know. Or depending on where you are, you pick up things. And he surely uh, had had a lot, I would imagine, even a few more. Yes. Anything else? Okay. Let's conclude with prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this opportunity to, to pause and try to glean some nuggets about an introduction to Luke and Acts as we think about Saul of Tarsus, Saul of Jerusalem, and then the Apostle Paul. Lord, thank you for your work, indeed for the glory of Jesus. And may we be diligent to think clearly about your word. May this study be profitable. May it be clear May I, Lord, not um, misuse the text, and may we remember it's descriptive, and what lessons could we draw, what could we learn? Uh, It's so far away in many ways, yet your church continues today because Christ sent the Spirit, the Father sent the Spirit, and we have your Spirit in us and working in us, and this is indeed a church of Jesus Christ, and we are delighted to to be your children by your grace. May Christ get all the glory, we ask. Amen.